there's a game behind the game, and I'm now on. And it's more complex than what most people can pick up on, not your everyday spectators. And this is probably more true of the game of baseball than perhaps any other sport. A really talented college basketball or football player will be playing every day in the pros pretty much the first year that they get to the major leagues or the NFL. This almost never happens in baseball. Even if you're the best player in the nation at your position, when you graduate, you still have a number of years of minor league training before you ever hit a major league baseball. Now, there's a number of reasons to this. One is because the the skill of hitting a major league pitch uh, is developed over decades. You can't just pick it up no matter how good your hand-eye coordination is. But it's also because the institutional knowledge of the game is so vast and so enormous that you can't just join in the major leagues even though you've dominated at college. Intangibles in the game of baseball, maybe more than any other sport, can be more important than raw talent. What the runners are going to do in a certain situation, what pitch a pitcher is going to throw most likely in certain pitch counts, how strategies change in different stadiums, the tendencies of every hitter that you face as a pitcher, how the ball bounces and travels in different stadiums in every stadium. So all of this institutional knowledge is what gives smarter players an advantage. And so if you field a team of 30-year-olds against 20-year-olds, even if the 20-year-olds have better, quicker reflexes, the raw talent may be more, uh, they're faster, they're stronger, the older team is going to win almost every single time because they've developed a knowledge of the game behind the game. They see what everyday fans and spectators can't see. And that's why you have uber fans that love baseball, but your normal person watches a game of baseball and says, this is so boring. But uber fans are looking at every little thing. They're looking at every position and seeing what the players are doing. And it is incredibly interesting and incredibly complex if you know what to look for. Now, Paul is telling us in this passage that there is a a reality in our world that few people can see, that few people notice, that spectators don't see, and that conventional wisdom doesn't see. And it is in discovering this reality and living by this reality that is critical to dealing with the troubles and the challenges that are plaguing this church in Corinth. So Paul's going to share some sort of inside baseball knowledge to help the Corinthian church, to help them heal and get them reoriented to their mission as a church. Now, the Apostle Paul planted this church likely just a few years uh, before he's writing this letter. And Corinth is a large, prosperous city where status is hyper-important where destructive sexual practices were rampant, where there were pronounced divisions between rich and poor. And the church at Corinth, instead of being a countercultural community, imagining for Corinth a different way, helping them to see the game behind the game, the reality of what God is doing, instead of being uh, 
a countercultural community. They were simply mirroring what was going on in the culture at large. And so you have lots of infighting in this church. You have strenuous debates about the role of women in worship. You have pursuit of status, which took the form of debates about which theological guru was the one to really follow. You have divisions between rich and poor at the Lord's Supper, and people were using the Eucharist as an excuse to get hammered and to party in their homes. And he writes to them, Paul does, to try and set them straight. And he speaks in ways that, if you were with us during our study of Matthew, sound very much like Jesus and not so much like Paul, who is normally didactic and very much of a teacher and very systematic. But he uses paradox, and he uses inversion. He begins to tell us that power is found in weakness, that wisdom is found in foolishness and that the lowly are the ones who are raised up. Sounds very much like Jesus, right? It sounds like Matthew. And Paul calls the Corinthian church, first of all, to a cross, to the cross, as the apocalyptic event where, in fact, heaven breaks into the world in a powerful way, and it creates inversion. Its power is in paradox. It turns the world upside down. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us, to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. God dying on a cross is where power is found. Where is the wise person? Where's the teacher of the law? Where's the philosopher of the age? And you can just imagine because these letters were written were read out loud in church settings. These people were like, uh-oh, he's talking about me. This is directed towards me. Paul is saying, where is your wisdom? Look at the cross. The cross is the power of God. Now, teachers and sages and debaters and scribes, these were the people that were given acclaim in cities like Corinth, like our present-day movie stars and sports heroes. These were the people whose status was envied. But Paul tells these high-status people, those, and those who aspire to be like them, seeking advantage uh, by advantaging themselves other, above others, that they have no place in the kingdom, that this sort of self-advantaging doesn't belong in the new kingdom that has been created by this apocalyptic event that is Jesus on the cross. Quite the contrary, God chose who? God chose the foolish. God chose the despised, the lowly, the weak things, and the things are not, that are not, to nullify the things that are. So that why? So that no one may boast before God. Now, boasting in Corinth was something of a, a high art. <laughs> this was a very boastful city. The end thing was to claim some sort of advantage based upon your education, based upon your wealth, based upon your family of origin. And that, that those things would affirm people's standing in the world. And it got so out of hand that there's evidence of people that they would actually go out to the city wall and inscribe their status on the city wall. They would put their status on a wall. 
kind of rings a bell, doesn't it? Today it's Facebook, where we brag on our wall. But this isn't a new practice, because people have always put their diplomas and their accolades and their awards in their office, right? Prominently displayed, so that the person sitting across from you knows who they're dealing with, that you're not just some chump, that a real institution has recognized your talent. There's no question about who you are. So everywhere you went, people were boasting about who they are, about what debates they had won, about who they had studied under, about who they followed, who was their guru. And the Corinthian church had completely drunk the Kool-Aid. They were exactly the same. Verse 12, which we didn't read, tells us that they were forming factions around which theological guru that they align with. And of course, that never happens in the church today. We've completely gotten by that. But Corinth's theological heroes weren't your everyday bloggers or celebrity pastors or authors. These guys were the real deal. This was Paul and Apollos and Cephas. You don't get any bigger than that except for Jesus. There was also a Jesus faction. But Paul says, no, you're missing the point. And he gives them what most commentators think is a hymn, that he's either written or that he's edited and then inserted into this Corinthian passage. But this hymn is a meditation upon the meaning of the cross. And that's the solution to this boasting and this positioning and this posturing this advantaging of oneself. For Paul, the cross, as we said, is an apocalyptic event. It's God's shocking intervention to save and transform the world. But it's more than just the means of transformation. It reflects the very nature of God. And if that's true, then God is the God of the oppressed. And God is a God of the disliked, and God is a God of the poor and the lonely and the weak. And these are not only the people that God has affection for, but lo and behold, these are the kinds of people that God builds His kingdom around. And if that's true, then our whole way of looking at the world and looking at power And looking at significance as a church has got to change. In fact, it's got to be inverted. It's got to be upside down. Now, many of you have been watching the show Stranger Things on Netflix. If you haven't, you should. It's a brilliant show. And one of the most prominent conceits in this show is the idea of the upside down. And this is a world that's a reflection or an echo of some sort of our world, of the real world. And it exists in such a way in another dimension that only few people can see it. And the primary character is a little girl that they've called Eleven. That's her number in this research facility. And she's the one that can move between the dimensions by telepathy. And she plays this sort of prophetic role where things that are happening in in the so-called real world are explained by the existence of the upside down. It's trippy stuff, but so is the gospel. And when the kids in Stranger Things, they ask for explanations of what's going on and how they can access, if they can access this other dimension, they go and talk to their their science teacher. And he explains that 
interdimensional travel is not possible because humans aren't capable of generating enough power, but it's theoretical, theoretically possible. You would need, however, to create a tear in space-time which would act as a gate to allow passage between those two worlds. In Paul's world, the cross is cosmically powerful. It's created a sort of tear in space and time. Heaven, this other dimension, has broken in to the world, and there are things that are happening that can't be explained unless you understand that, unless you know that the passageway between those two dimensions is the cross. The way up is down Power is in weakness, exaltation in suffering. God, the King, dies on behalf of His kingdom. This is what explains the goings-on, the happenings in our world. It's a whole new world that is breaking in, but you have to know how to see it. You have to have the right lenses. You have to have a prophet like Eleven. You have to have Jesus to show us, and you can't see it merely as a spectator. You can't see it merely as a fan. You have to be a follower. And it's not like following the trailblazers or following the timbers or following someone on Twitter. You don't just click a button and you see it. You have to participate. You have to follow. You have to be all in. Paul is telling us that only if our life, if our thinking If our values, if our hopes are completely inverted, will they ever fit into the world as it really is and as it will one day fully be? be. There's an upside down, you see, a game behind the game that mere spectators can't see. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. No one wants to see truth through a cross. No one wants to be empowered by suffering. No one wants to become strong by being weak and putting your own needs and your own interests below others. That's foolishness unless you have encountered Jesus, unless He has encountered you, unless He has changed you. To those who are being saved, it is the power of God, you see. Boasting, posturing, competition, division in the church, what Paul is saying is not just stop it, Corinthian church, but he is saying that this sort of practice shows that they value the superficially impressive wisdom of the present age, and they are not living by the upside-down realities of the cross, that they haven't really fully done business with the Jesus, the Messiah who dies on a cross. But notice, this is cool. We talked about call to the cross, first of all. Now call to community. That you can only fully experience and grasp the upside-down realities of the cross inside of a community that gets it. Now, this church, as I said, is only a few years old, and it was planted in a very pagan society, so likely it's a fairly small church. And Paul makes reference in First and Second Corinthians to two other letters that didn't make it into our Bible that we don't have copies of, but we know that they were sent. 
And we also, he also makes reference of some communication that they have done, that they have sent to Paul. And he planted this church just a few years earlier. He's received communication from them, and he's written at least four letters. In the ancient world, this is virtually constant contact, right? So he knows this church. He knows its people. He knows its challenges. He knows the people that are stirring up trouble. But what does he say in the letter? He doesn't say, okay, guys, you got to deal with Aristotle because he is sleeping around. He doesn't say, you got to have a conversation with Sophocles because he's dividing the church. He doesn't say, look, Socrates thinks he's so special and he won't share communion with poor people. What do I mean by that? He's not naming individuals. He's not calling out people, even though likely he knows exactly who is doing what. No, he writes a letter to the church. He writes the letter to a community because this is a community problem. It's not simply individual problems. And this is exactly the same approach that Isaiah takes in the verses that Paul quotes in verse 19, where he says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Why? Isaiah 29, the Lord says, these people, this assembly, this community comes near to me with their mouth. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules that they have been taught. Therefore, once more, I will astound these people with wonder upon wonder. The wisdom of the wise will perish. The intelligence of the intelligent will vanish. Certainly, there were some good people in the nation of Israel during the time of Isaiah. Certainly, there were some stellar participants, some stellar people. But he calls out the entire community. Everyone is culpable in that community. Somehow, the entire community has lost sight of Yahweh. And it's the same exact situation in Corinth. It is not just that so-and-so is messing up or sinning, but the entire community has forgotten the cross, has forgotten the gospel. The Corinthians make a show of possessing wisdom and honoring God with their lips, but their fractious behavior shows that they haven't really done business with the cross and that their heart is far from God. So what's the cure? Stop it. Quit doing that. Yeah, sure, he itemizes the behavior, but the behavior is symptoms of a deeper problem. And until he deals with that deeper problem, and this is true of you and me in our spiritual life, that if we're just dealing with the surface things, we won't get better. We won't change. We have to deal with the deeper issues. What's the cure to this divisiveness? Well, he remembers the Corinthian story for them. And I think this is in town's story as well. How convenient. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. 
Now, there may have been some who were relatively affluent, relatively high status or influential. Notice he doesn't say none of you, but he says not many of you are highly educated or wealthy or powerful. That's us, right? We're not a church full of powerful, deep-pocketed people. We're everyday people. Nonetheless, to the church of God in Corinth, to in town, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be His holy people, Paul reminds them of their calling, the calling of the cross, the calling of the type of people that you are, that I am, that the church of Corinth was, that God doesn't normally call Caesar. He doesn't normally call people of sensational power to represent His kingdom to the world. He doesn't normally call people of wealth and recognition to represent the gospel. But instead, this motley assembly of the church that includes rich and poor, that includes married and single, that includes young and old, spiritually convinced, spiritually searching, people with houses, people that are homeless. This is the sort of community that actually reflects the nature of the gospel and the nature of the cross. In fact, it was this mixed socioeconomic status of the church, which was one of the most striking features of the church at Corinth and of the church in the early church movement. Then as now, neighborhoods and social clubs tended to be economically homogeneous. But the Christian community invited all, and it gave them all equal status and equal standing and acknowledged rich and poor, young and old, brothers and sisters. This was astounding in the ancient world. It's only, you see, a community whose values seem to be upside down that can sync up with the upside-down values of the kingdom and the upside-down reality of our world. Only a community, a church whose value and life seems to be upside down and out of sync that can convey the message of the cross. God is creating and has created a new community out of unimpressive material on purpose, precisely to show the nature of His unmerited grace. The social composition, the economic composition of the church, rich and poor, outsider, insider, powerful, weak, is an outward and visible sign of God's grace. What is the reason that the church is composed this way? Well, as I alluded, one is because it better reflects the nature of God's kingdom ultimately and of the power of a cross. But also, verse 29, and we'll close with this, so that no one may boast before Him. Why is the church composed this way? So that no one may boast before Him. No one can stand before God, the awesome holiness of God, and possess anything He needs, possess anything that you can barter with. No one can stand before the holiness of God and have anything that he must reward. 
And therefore, when you get in, it's by His unmerited favor, His unmerited grace, and therefore, no one can look down upon someone else in the church. No one can consider their demands to be preeminent. No one can demand that their theological guru is everyone else's theological guru. All self-assertion must melt away. Accordingly, the sign of the new world, the sign of the new reality is made up of people that the world doesn't admire, doesn't want to emulate, doesn't want to have anything to do with sometimes. And it is because of Him, verse 30, that you are brought into this community. Of Him. How? Christ Jesus has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. You see, you don't go up, but He comes down. Christ Jesus has become for us wisdom and righteousness and redemption and holiness. That's how you get it. It's not by striving and agitating and working. It is by receiving. Christ Jesus became for us. Where? On the cross. You want wisdom? Sage, debater, scribe, power broker? Here is God's wisdom. It is Christ crucified. That's the way to God. If we're looking to Jesus simply for wise aphorisms about life, techniques on spirituality, affirmation of our human potential, we'll miss Him. The wisdom of God is Christ crucified for you. So you're free from your boasting. You're free from your posturing. You're free from your competing. And you're free of your sin forever. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, let us, as we confess our faith and come to the table, live out of this reality that you are a God who doesn't, first of all, make demands of us, but you make demands upon yourself, that you go to the cross to woo us, to solve our problems for us, to invite us in, that you offer us everything at no cost, but at great, great cost to you. Father, as we feed upon your body and your blood. We pray that you would change us. We pray that we would center our lives both as individuals and as community more upon your work on the cross.